0: Welcome to Built to Scale E-Commerce Show with Darius and Justin. We are the founders of Ad Kings Agency, an industry-leading boutique e-commerce, Facebook ads, and omni-channel funnels growth agency. Our insights and expertise have helped to generate over $45 million in revenue and spent over $18 million on paid acquisition for our clients in the last year alone. In this podcast, we open up about the marketing and business development strategies and
1: tactics we use to get these results. All right. So, welcome to the Build to Scale e commerce show with me, Justin. And today, we'll Kyle Hunt. A little bit more about a Kyle. He's an American entrepreneur and a business investor with over eight years of experience in starting, scaling, buying, and selling seven- to eight-figure e-commerce companies. So welcome, Kyle, to the show.
0: Thank you, Justin. I appreciate
1: you having me on. And a little bit more info, what Kyle is doing right now, so everyone will have more of a context. We'll give a chance, Kyle, as well, to introduce himself. But... um, The information that I've found and how he's kind of uh, introducing himself. So he's uh, currently a CEO of a brand, Family Gifts Co, an eight figure direct to consumer e commerce company and uh, one of the fastest growing companies in the family gift space. So Kyle was our client and we helped him and we went from like 2000 in 2019 from about half a million and Mm -hmm in 2020 ending at about 25 mil in revenue in just one year, like a massive growth. Yeah. And we had some great days when we were like even spending 100K a day on ads with his business. So definitely was yeah. a wild ride for sure. Complete roller coaster
0: is how I would phrase it, but yeah, complete wild ride. And Justin, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate all of the work that you guys did when we were working together. You're a phenomenal agency and definitely help contribute to the insane growth of Family Gifts Co. So I really appreciate that. I know you didn't tell me to say that, but I'm saying it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we've been discussing what type of topics actually to cover. I have my own interests of what to talk about, but mainly I think we'll focus today discussion around three main questions and topics. So how to grow your e-commerce business to eight figures, how to manage this type of growth. I think not a lot of people really think they're really like are amazed or seeking to afford those high numbers, but they really think what is it like in the back end of actually managing people, managing processes, orders and so on. And the last one is that Kyle is now as well, like investing and looking to buy some of the businesses to and acquire and actually help to grow them. So, what investors are looking for in, in e-commerce businesses. And I know that he's been focusing on that for almost a year now, has his own learnings, but as well things that he's looking for because for sure, as an investor, you're thinking where to invest the money and uh, you're looking for to take the money uh, as a profits as well. So, yeah. so Kyle, could you introduce yourself and as well, I um, would be very keen to know how you ended up with e-commerce? Is it something that you started from the very beginning or step by step you went towards this industry?
0: Yeah. So I've been in the internet marketing space now for eight years, going on nine years. I've owned a few different companies. My first company was a lead generation company in the finance industry. So we sent leads over to finance company. Had zero experience with anything internet marketing prior to that. I had a marketing degree from University of Central Florida, and they don't teach anything about digital marketing at the time. This was 2009. So I literally had to Google how to create a landing page, how to create a Google ad, (laughs) because I was starting from zero. Ended up building that company pretty quickly to a multi-seven-figure company within a year to two, and had an exit to my partner at the time. I've had a supplement company. It was a mind supplement that we ended up building out to a multi-seven-figure company as well. And then my most recent company is Family Gifts Co. And I've had like little companies in between all of this that were mostly failures. Obviously, you're going to fail more than you're succeeding anytime you're an entrepreneur. So I don't want to make this seem like these are all super great successes. I've not had failures because I've had a bunch. But Family Gifts Co. is my most recent company. And Justin, as you said, you know, we had half a million in revenue. And those last three months of 2019, when we started as a company, and then we did, it was like $28 million in gross revenue and. 2020, but I I say it's like 25 and a half after, because I don't count like discounts and everything. That's fake money, right? Never went into my pocket. So it's been a pretty insane ride. Now I will say we're not going to do 25 million this year with Family Gifts Co. We'll still do eight figures, but I think that market timing had a lot to do with the success of Family Gifts Co. Probably like 40% of our success. But yeah, just completely insane ride. But to answer your question, e-commerce, it's been my focus for the pretty much the past five years. I mean, I'm super bullish on it. All my plans, future plans, include growing and scaling e-commerce companies.
1: And you've, I didn't plan asking that, but um, I'm always curious. um, Not only you talk about the current things that you've been doing, but pretty much as well talk about some of the challenges or some of the things that you have done that weren't really that successful. But uh, I would say a lot of time, most of the learnings and the things where like what you want and what you don't want to do come from there. So you said that you have done some of the other businesses in between and you have launched some other ventures too that mm-hmm. were successful as well. Throughout that experience, what maybe were your main takeaways or things that you liked or preferred or something that you thought that you should never do you know, the <laughs> same way again? and just completely change your perspective, either in the business or growing the business or building the business or selecting the people? What were the main learnings then?
0: Yeah, so I'll give you an example. So one company that I started, and this was in between the supplement company and Family Gosco, Co., was called Embrace the Unicorn. And this was back in 2018 when unicorns were all the rage. Starbucks had just introduced their unicorn coffee. And I had this brilliant idea or so I thought to create print-on-demand unicorn products, like expensive for what they were, $50 to $60, unicorn stuff. And I had never run an ad on Facebook in my entire life. My only experience was Google ads. And I'd read all this information about Facebook ads and how to work them. The thing that people were promoting at the time was DPA ads, starting off only DPA ads. And now we don't really do too many of those on the front end. Most of those are retargeting. And also... I kept reading, you have to prime your Facebook pixel. So I'm over here thinking, oh, all we have to do is put money into Facebook and Facebook algorithm will immediately learn what we need it to and start converting for us. When obviously that's not how the Facebook algorithm works, right? The pixel is only going to prime things when it has good data. We made, I think, $300 and I probably spent $8,000 on ads on this company. So it was a horrible failure. But I I learned so much about Facebook marketing because I'd never done it before and I think that's probably one of the number one takeaways is you really have to do things to become experts at them, become an expert at them. I read a lot. I read one to two hours a day, but there's only so much that reading can help you. You need to experience things. And you need to try things. You need to fail. You need to fail a lot because if you're not, then you're in your comfort zone too much and you're going to have competition that's going to surpass you. In Family Gifts Co., it's okay to fail. We just have to learn from it. And we want people to fail but just learn from it and make sure that we don't make those same mistakes twice.
1: And about Family Gifts Co., a little bit more of a background on how it started and how did it grow. I know in 2019, it looked a little different and you just <laughs> found something that yeah. could be scaled. So yeah, just a little bit about where you started, how you ended up and how you kind of figured out what's working.
0: I saw some companies in what's called the print-on-demand industry which is essentially an industry that's similar to drop shipping, but there's typically United States vendors, and they're typically printing onto a product in the United States, like a Canvas product we sell, or a tumbler or a Mug, which is a more traditional type of print-on-demand product, and you're not holding that inventory, and they're shipping that off to customers. So I saw some companies in early 2019 who were pretty successful, I thought, with print-on-demand and I listened to a lot of trainings from Don Wilson over at Gear Bubble, who's a phenomenal resource who just sold his company, an awesome, super smart guy. And I was like, I can try print-on-demand. I think I can do this. And I think I can do a better job than most people out there because I'll work harder than them. So we started the store, Family Gifts Co., and you know, we started off with tumblers and mugs, which are like the traditional print-on-demand type items. And they have a $20 to $30 average order value. And what I found was that it was really difficult to scale. And it was really difficult to make money. So that first three months that we were in business, where we did half a million in revenue, we made something like $8,000, something terrible. I'm like, man, this is way too much work for the little amount of money that we made. I thought, like, what could we sell that would give us a lot better margin with Facebook? And then I saw some more of our competitors. And you'll see this is like I'm constantly doing product research and competitor research to understand the market. I saw some competitors were selling canvases for $80. And I thought that was super undervalued. So we started selling them at $100. So now we had tripled our average order value overnight because we went from a $30 average order order value to a $100 or average order value. We sell personalized products. So there's a designer that touches every single product, right? So now we've cut in a third the amount of customer service and personalized designers that we need for every product. So that it's instantly way more profitable as well. And it was just a great market insight to switch from those low ticket to high-ticket products, and now we have a $100, $210 average order value on our site. And that gave us a ton of room to push with paid ads with your team, push with Google, and scale to the amounts that we did.
1: Yeah, and I think it's definitely... And we have seen similar businesses this year, actually. And it was like a number of businesses entering this market. just They saw an opportunity and everyone <laughs> wanted to take part oh, yeah. of it. And we have talked and seen businesses from the inside. And I think the biggest thing that was looking at your business and other businesses, and I think, to be honest, we have to talk with at least five of print the demand canvas businesses <laughs> uh, this surprising. year. And the biggest difference was the average order value, to be honest. Even though they were selling exactly the same products or so, not having the upsells or if the product page is different or like they're mm. still focusing on the mugs or so, just overall average order value was... I would say 30% lower of what you were having. And I think that 30% advantage that you had, it was something like mainly that helped you to grow and scale the business compared to others.
0: Yeah, definitely. And if you think about the psychology of our customer as well, so we're a gift-based company. If you think about what the average American wants to spend on a gift, what they see is like a premium price for a gift. $100 is really that sweet spot we've been able to really hit. And of course, we have some lower-cost products, we have some higher products, but at the end of the day, it all evens out to $100. Companies that aren't in a gift-based space that maybe are just selling canvases, they're going to have a more difficult time because there's not that price anchor in the customer's mind to what the customer believes is a good, solid price for an anniversary gift or a gift for their husband or a gift for their kid. So we kind of have that advantage going into it as well. Additionally, as you mentioned, we did spend a lot of time optimizing our funnels, whether that was... You know the initial product page itself, whether that's the post-purchase sequence that we use, in which we really leveraged a lot of digital products because they're a hundred percent margin. And you know, as a business, we've kind of historically been around thirty percent cost of goods sold, which I'd like to be much lower. So adding those digital products really helped with that as well. Using you guys for CRO as well, you know, anything we can to add that added advantage. Anytime someone comes to our site, we invested in, and we're constantly trying to optimize.
1: Yeah, I would say. You're a pretty sophisticated e-commerce owner and previously e-commerce businesses. You're always constantly learning. But what I've said to you, and we've been having these discussions at, uh, let's see, other client of ours, and we've been recommending these type of things, even like people don't really think when they own a physical product or like they're selling a physical product that they could sell or introduce some kind of a digital products. Mm -hmm. Could be some kind of a PDF or like a crash course or whatever that goes really well with the product or so. And people don't really think about it, but it's like, as I said, hundred percent, you know, a profit margin on those, but at the same time having enough upsells. But to be honest, if we talk about call acquisition or like acquisition through social media ads or so, every year, almost every quarter is getting more and more expensive and you just need to have higher average order value. It's not only about the lifetime value, but to be honest, anything that is getting closer to about a hundred dollars is necessary. Fifty dollars is like hardly enough today, and we're still seeing with each and every one of the business that that's the case.
0: Yeah, and it's pretty insane actually that CPMS are still as high as they are with all the advertisers lowering budgets with iOS 14. But your point is accurate it's important from a cash flow perspective to have a high average order value on that first product. We're not a subscription business. We can't lose money on that first sale. But those first three sales, like a lot of the subscription businesses that we're looking at. So it's really important for us to make money on that first sale. And then on the back end, have lower ticket products to sell people. So there's like two general methods you would use as an e-commerce business owner to scale. right? And the one would be like an Ascension method where you'd sell a low ticket product on the front end. And then, on the back end, you try to upsell people to higher ticket products. We're sort of the opposite of that, and we've seen that be successful as well. You know we sell a hundred dollar price point first product, and then we try to make money on the back end through thirty dollar tumblers and then maybe a ninety dollar blanket. So lots of different ways to scale that for sure.
1: when growing this fast as you did, and it's humanly impossible to have enough hours you know to cover everything so From your experience of the last year, for example, what were the biggest nightmares growing at that level and at that pace?
0: So I'd never grown a company this fast before. All those seven-figure companies are a completely different animal than an eight-figure company from an infrastructure and operational perspective. I forget who said the quote, but they're like, you know, starting a company is like jumping off a cliff and trying to build an airplane on the way down. And it was the exact same thing with Family Gifts Co. And we were heading towards the ground really quickly. Like we're, we're at terminal velocity really quickly. So we were learning as we were going. And it was a lot of a trial by fire, if you will. I was really lucky in that I was able to hire really quickly from within. So for instance, like our current operations manager, and I would suggest any company that's growing quickly does this as well. But our current operations manager started as a customer service agent and then moved into our customer service manager and then moved into our office manager. And that all happened within probably three to four months. Right? Our project manager was a customer service agent, and then was customer service manager, and then moved into a project manager role. So we really believed and still do believe on promoting from within and hiring, promoting quickly, hiring slowly to make sure that you're getting the right qualified candidates that not only would work for your company, but work from a core values perspective. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things is just making sure you're getting the right people in the right seats, and then promoting them making sure that they understand exactly what they're supposed to be doing in their position. I think one of the key things that we also did was we implemented EOS, which is the Entrepreneurial Operating System, based off a book called Traction by Gina Wickman, which if you haven't read, I would highly suggest that you do. There's a few competing company operating systems, if you will, like scaling up. But this is the simplest one that we found. And I like simplicity because things are changing so often. So everyone has a, a vision for the company. Everyone knows what the core values are for the company. Everyone understands their individual KPIs that they're supposed to meet in order to be successful. You know, We have great meeting flows within the company now where we don't waste time. Like, people typically hate meetings, but like our meetings are great. We know exactly what's going to happen in every meeting. And that's like solving issues. So I, I think as early as possible, getting people that you can trust into those positions of authority is probably one of the most important things that we did to help us scale. You know, I can't imagine trying to do that, scale as fast as we did without People we trusted quickly. So,
1: all right. So, hiring is like one of the things. um, So, a little bit more about it. What was like the biggest amount of people in a shortest period of time that you have hired, let's say, (laughs)
0: last year? Oh, gosh. Well, we had a terrible logistics issue last year around Christmas time. We don't manufacture anything in house, we use outside printers for all of our canvas prints. And we built a network of five different manufacturers over the course of the last year and a half that we load balance between based upon price, like how much it's going to cost us to ship the canvas, and deliverable time. So how long is it going to take for that canvas to get to the customer? And around Christmas time last year, one of our manufacturers, who happened to be the majority of our deliveries, had a terrible issue and they have cargo containers of canvas stolen. And it was just a nightmare for us because we didn't find out about it until like two weeks later. And... Trying to tell customers that their Christmas gifts were going to be late was horrible. But because we had such a backlog of tickets, we had to hire a ton of customer service people. And I think there was a period in December of like three to four weeks where we probably hired 70 customer service agents just to deal with the backlog and probably another 10 to 20 designers just to keep up with designs. That was the most insane rush of hiring we've ever had. You know, Nothing is going to go right when you're hiring that fast. So many things are going to break and they did. And I would not recommend putting yourself in that situation ever. But when the company's on the line, you have to do what you have to do. But traditionally, we were hiring at the pace of a few people a month, maybe three to five people per month. And that'd be some combination of like designers and customer service. Then we have big months like Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, Valentine's Day for us, where you just have to hire temp workers because there's no way you can meet the demand with your existing infrastructure. And those would be probably... Fifty percent that increase the size of our staff during those periods to keep up with demand.
1: So that's like one of the topics that people struggle the most. We struggle. I was having another conversation with the other agency owner, and he had like a multiple ventures as well, and uh, now they're growing as well with their own agency pretty rapidly. The Biggest challenge that we're facing is hiring. But on that note, from the hiring perspective and like hiring people that faster so. You make mistakes, but you learn really fast too because the pace is way higher and so on so from the learning perspective, if you would do that you know the second time or let's say maybe not 70 people, let's say 30, 40 people you'll be hiring or so I don't know from the structural perspective, operational perspective, how would you educate people or so, how would you prepare or how would you structure this whole hiring? Again, if that would be a little bit too a higher volume, as I said, 30, 40 people or so. Gotcha.
0: Well, first of all, what we did to combat that so we never have that situation again, and this was one key hire that we did not have, that if you're manufacturing or if you're fulfilling at scale, you need to have is an analyst who is looking on a daily basis at all of your vendors and ensuring that things are being created. And then after they're created, that they're being fulfilled correctly and on time within your delivery SLAs. And then after they've been shipped, that they're being delivered, especially if you're like lower ticket items right now, USPS is a nightmare to deal with. So you have to have someone on top of those things, on top of USPS, looking in an app like after ship, making sure things are being delivered on time, or you're going to have a customer service nightmare. So I think being proactive with that one hire would have saved us a lot of money, way more than I'm ever willing to admit. So if you don't have that hire in your business, in your innate figure business or scaling to it, you need to hire that person now. That being said, I actually have not done most of the hiring myself. What I've learned early on is to trust the the hires that I've moved into positions of authority. So like our operations manager and our customer service manager, they're doing all the hiring now for customer service and for design and for anything that's operationally related. I have zero input on it now because I trust them. So I think now, obviously, when we were building up our hiring program and we're building out KPIs, and we're building out responsibilities. Like I had an involvement in that, but once that was set up, it's just—it's now I trust them. And is there division meeting KPIs? Are they constantly improving things? Because if they are, then there's no need for me to get involved. I should stay in my swim lane and focus on growing the business and you know strategic stuff.
1: Okay, and uh, just uh, very quickly, uh, I'm very curious to know when you were, for example, building this whole structure. Or so on and uh, you're hiring customer service agents at, for example, at a higher pace. So mm-hmm. just very briefly, how does it really look like from like, how you structure your hiring process and as well, like onboarding then as fast as possible, meaning that they need still to know as fast as possible about the business, the product, uh, the policies, and whatever in order actually to answer some of the questions or so, but just from gotcha. your perspective, how you did at that time.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And this is something that is constantly evolved within the business as we've learned more. The hiring process now is a lot more streamlined. We know exactly where to go to hire people. We have a BPO that we've partnered with in the Philippines, which is where we hire most of our customer service agents that has phenomenal talent on demand. So the most difficult part of hiring for us immediately is fixed already because the company we've partnered with has a talent pool that's, that's phenomenal. They all speak perfect English, they have like master engineering degrees. They're way smarter than I'll ever dream to be, right? And I think that was a really key business relationship to build off the bat. And now we have once these people have gone through our hiring process, which is like initial interview, and then a interview with the ops manager and a core values interview, making sure that they align with our company. Now we have like a two week indoctrination period that includes elements of shadowing our lead agents, includes training programs, includes. Going like a Trello board that they're able to check things off includes you know, video overviews that we've already prepared. So there's a ton of content for them to consume. And then you know, just really having that continual partnership with lead agents who are like advisors to them, making sure that they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. If they ever have a question that someone who knows the answer already is super available for them.
1: Okay. So generally, there's a talent pool that you're using. So you're working with a partner, but like the whole onboarding process is about two weeks, as you said.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there's some companies that sell super complex products that have a much longer onboarding period. I mean, we sell canvases and tumblers, right? It's not that difficult. So it's a pretty quick program. And we've tested like a week, and that was definitely not enough. We've tested longer, but two weeks is sort of where the balance between the the cost that we're going to invest in people to be a good employee. And the amount of content that they need to learn to be 80% good at their jobs is good. And the rest of the 20% they're going to learn on the job.
1: Now, moving on, we'll, or maybe we can actually explore a little bit of a, as we started with uh, some of the operations, hiring, customer support, and so on. We can investigate a little bit more what's happening in the back end. So, what are the biggest unforeseen challenges while growing that fast and, you know, and talking more about now specifically about the back end. so it could be you know finance, people, processes, mm-hmm. or so. What are the challenges, and from those challenges, maybe you know some of the learnings part of it. I guess you already a little bit mentioned, but uh, I bet there's like a number of other things that I haven't really covered yet.
0: Yeah, there's a few. So obviously, starting a business, having zero infrastructure, getting something like E one place, EoS in place, or scaling up, I highly recommend that will solve the majority of your business issues from a ops and systems perspective. That being said, there's always issues that you could have never foreseen that become issues. One of those issues for us was merchant processing. You know, We thought that we started off using Stripe as our merchant processor, but what we learned, not just from a merchant processing perspective, but also a banking perspective as well, is that anytime you go from half a million in revenue in a month to two million revenue the next month, people that deal with your money, like your merchant processors and your banks, have questions. And it's not like... They're nice questions. It's like, hey, we're freezing your funds because we think this might be illegal type questions. so th- there's some definite challenges initially starting with our merchant processors with Stripe, with PayPal that just took a lot of back and forth with and then trust building with their team to make sure that we could continue to do business. And you know obviously that affected us from a cash flow perspective as well. Stripe can hold your they can put a reserve on your accounts of ten percent. So anytime you sell a hundred dollars product, ten percent goes to them and they're going to hold that reserve for one hundred and eighty days. Or they could just hold your funds for a few months because they're looking at this from a risk perspective, right? I had an understanding of this from previous businesses, but I didn't think it would happen in a canvas company. I'm like, we sell canvases. like This is super simple, right? Like, How bad could this be? So we very quickly started to develop relationships with local banks who we could build a more personal relationship with, who are who more okay with the print-on-demand model than Stripe was. So I think that was a huge issue. Same thing with banks, making sure that we're partnered with... the the right banks that understand our risks as a business. and are okay with crazy swings up and down of revenue. You know, It was so weird being questioned by banks about like, oh, how'd you do, go from like half a million to 2 million? And I'm like, we you know, spent a million dollars with Facebook. Like, I don't know if to tell you. There's <laughs> there's nothing nefarious going on here. Yeah. So I never thought that would be an issue, and it was. And the answer to all of it was just making sure that we're partnering with people that, that understand our business. Supply chain, I sort of understood it would be an issue. Because obviously we don't hold physical inventory, so there's no way for us to have 100% control. But I did think that between load balancing between five different vendors, if one went down, we'd be able to move quickly to another facility. What I didn't anticipate, relative to the Christmas issue that I that I discussed earlier, was the volume of orders that we'd be receiving. Number one, so I mean, we had $300,000 days around Christmas, like for multiple days in a row, we we're selling 3,000 canvases a day. We we're probably one of the largest canvas selling companies in the United States at that time. But I did not really understand the full impact that Christmas would have on delivery infrastructure in the United States, as well as within the manufacturers themselves. I mean, we had companies, manufacturers, who had to shut down entire shifts because of COVID, right? Because this was, this was Christmas 2020. Yeah. And that put us back. And then we had the cargo containers full of canvases go missing, right? That put us back. And we just did not have a true sense of what things were where, what products were where in the delivery process. And that was a very expensive lesson learned. And again, again, the analyst position really helped us have a better feel for that. Now anytime something is outside of our production SLAs, like we're messaging the fulfillment team. Anytime it's out of our shipping SLAs, we're messaging them. Anytime it's outside of our delivery SLAs, we're messaging them to send a new product, even though it's like technically we're paying for a product that we shouldn't ship. But like hmm. to have happy customers, that's what you need to do. So I think those are probably some of the biggest challenges that I never thought of or if I did think of them, I didn't think of the problem thorough enough.
1: Do <laughs> remember if you did from the very beginning or like we had a discussion that uh, you know especially for your business that, that would be really valuable and we'll discuss one of the other topics that I think is like extremely valuable that mm-hmm. did not a lot of other business owners are doing or like have a similar mindset or so but I would say I see a lot of businesses actually in e-commerce struggle with financials, meaning that while they're growing, that's you know, they need more cash flow to buy the inventory or so that's like one type of an issue. But the other issue is that now we do this and for every new client that comes in if they don't have like that type of a software or so, but actually just monitoring your finance on daily or weekly basis oh, yeah. because a lot of businesses actually just do like a PNL just at the end of the month or so, and mm-hmm. that's it. And there's no just way to run
0: a business. Yeah,
1: yeah, they just look at their bank account. They just like look at a Facebook, maybe AdWords or so. They <laughs> like look at a Shopify. They kind of a, have a feeling, but at the same time, not really how everything actually connects and was like a profitable day or not really, like it and how it was like profitable or not. So I think like. Making this clear of adding all the main channels where you're spending the money, as well as connecting your process payment providers and all the rest of the things, like your ongoing costs, like a fixed one or so, just having a very clear picture, like on what's going on weekly at least basis, I think is really important. And this is what you did early on.
0: Yes, I think that the number one thing stopping most companies from scaling to seven or eight figures is not having a good understanding of their numbers and of their, of their finances, and what that is on a daily basis, and how that impacts them in the future. You as an agency, I'm sure you hear this all the time when you're talking to people. You're talking on the phone with a new client, and they say, we want a three-times return on ad spend. And you ask them why, and they're like, well, because that's what we think is a good return on ad spend. But but why is that a good return on ad spend? Like, What kind of margin do you get from that three-times return on ad spend? And what we found from our own account and from other accounts is that most companies that are in the multi-seven figure and eight-figure, there seven, multi multi-seven figure, eight-figure brands are scaling at a two to a two and a half times return on ad spend because they're looking at LTV on the back end for all that cash to come in. And most people have never run the numbers to say, "Hey, what's my break-even return on ad spend or my break-even cost of acquisition?" You know, if I were to double my budget, what does that look like from a performer perspective on my finances? You really need to have a solid understanding of those numbers, and you guys actually have a great sheet. That you gave to me when I first started off that goes through that information that people need to have a better understanding of, or else they're kind of, they don't have a good target that's based on reality. It's based on a feeling, and you can't run a company based on feelings. Yeah. Um, So, one of the softwares that we started using early on is called Order Metrics. And I wish I got some sort of affiliate link from them because I'd probably be making a billion dollars right now in all my talks because I always mention them. And there's probably some competitors now, but at that time there wasn't. It basically allows you to input all of your costs on a daily basis, and then it'll pull in data like your Facebook and your Google from a revenue and a cost perspective. So it's like a mini P&L. It's never going to be exact, but it's close enough to where you can say, yeah, today was a good day, We made 10% or we lost 5% or whatever those numbers are. So I think implementing that is super important. And then taking a look at also what is your 90-day LTV, especially if you're a company that's like a supplement company or something that has recurring revenue to truly understand what's, what numbers should you be looking at too on a cold traffic basis from a cost per acquisition or return on ad spend. Because if you're using your day one basis, like you have competitors, they're going to way outspend you and then you're going to lose. So whoever can spend the most wins, right? And having a good understanding of your numbers is the only way you're going to succeed.
1: So moving on from you know unforeseen challenges in the back end, now moving on to more of the front end, which is like sales marketing, mainly where you're like attracting the customers, thinking about maybe diversifying the channel or so. From your perspective, what were unforeseen challenges and the uh, main learnings that you have taken from the front end?
0: Ah, uh, That's a great question. So when you start off advertising, it's super easy, right? Because most people should start off on Facebook. Because Facebook, with a very low budget, you can test at scale. And you can test quickly and you can use those learnings to create new ads or create new products. That's super easy to, well, it's more difficult now because Facebook reporting is like the worst reporting ever for a multi-billion dollar company. It's, it's terrible. But that's super easy from attribution perspective because you can look in Facebook Ads Manager, theoretically, right, and see, oh, I spent $500, I made $1,000. Once you start introducing other ad platforms, things get very messy. There was a time when we had Facebook, we had Google Ads, we had TikTok, we had Pinterest, we had influencer marketing we had email marketing, we had direct mail, right? And trying to attribute sales from all that is complete insanity unless you have a software that's specifically designed for that. So we've used a company, again, I wish I had an affiliate link because I'd, I'd be a billionaire now, um, called Rockerbox as our single source of, of truth for multi-channel attribution. There's other platforms out there like Wicked Reports, Alex be- Hyros is another one. We tested them all and we liked Rockerbox the best. But just having a single source where you can see attribution for each channel is, is super important. Without that, we would have been lost in turning off ad sets because everyone tries to over-attribute, right? Like Facebook wants to have its best impression to its customers, so they want to attribute sales. Google, same thing. All these platforms end up overattributing, and you're like, man, we did two million in revenue this month, but like attribution-wise, it looks like we did two and a half million in revenue. So really, having an understanding of the customer journey and how each platform affects that is super important.
1: Right. I remember, I think it was like in you know, a quarter two, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah.
0: And you guys, I remember, were super hesitant about this. You're like, we're not supposed to use Facebook to scale. I'm like, I'm telling you, this is what we should do. And I was actually not 100% on it as well. <laughs> but, you know, we ran the test. We tested Facebook attribution and scaling up and down Facebook versus using Rockerbox and Rockerbox one hands down. So.
1: Yeah. I remember it was just a specific period of time where we were struggling and uh, we couldn't. Spend more, and we want it, and we saw an opportunity. Mm-hmm. But uh, the main thing that it was the Facebook reporting just sucked, and like yeah, you c- couldn't rely on on just Facebook. It seems that on the shop level, it's kind of fine, and you're like we're profitable. But is it coming? And from what type of ads, or like is it just Facebook yep. or other channel are picking up, or so? And I remember, yeah, the advertiser in, in our team been. Just started running a test and just looking at Rockerbox data, and I think Mm -hmm. we just within like days or so we were able to double the ASP and profitably just by looking not only to the Facebook but mainly to Rockerbox. Yeah, Uh, so
0: complete game changer. And you would never think that it's that important. Again, back to like having a good understanding of your numbers. You know, having a single source of truth is very important for scaling, especially if you're in more than one channel.
1: Right. Any other things that you've gone through? Number of channels, as well. you have experienced those, <laughs> and so on. So anything in regards to the channels, what you like and what you didn't, or like how do they work together, Maybe you know something you ran like last year, you stopped running this year, any other learnings and uh, from the sales or marketing?
0: Google, Facebook has traditionally been our largest revenue driver, and then Google has fallen behind in a not even close second. You know as iOS fourteen issues have creeped up in Facebook, it's been more difficult. To spend with them. you know, Even if you're not tracking properly in Facebook's ads platform, it's still difficult for their AI because they, it's just not as smart right now. It's going to take some time for their AI to learn the new world with Apple transparency issues. We've tested Pinterest in the past, and it was only good for us during periods like Mother's Day, Father's Day. Otherwise, we were losing money. We've tested TikTok, same thing. We're currently in a test with TikTok now for Spark Ads, which is their influencer platform which theoretically should have better performance than a non-influencer type ad, but we'll see. We're still in week one of that. That's very early. We're still doing influencer marketing. You know, We have two people on that team right now. It's super small. It's actually pretty good from a return on investment standpoint. We get anywhere from like three to five times return on investment on influencer, which is actually... I didn't know this, but it's phenomenal even at the low scale that we're doing it. But to be honest, we use influencer just for content creation more than anything. Our demographic is 55 year old women who aren't the best technologically at creating videos on an iPhone. So we find that influencers create the best content for us or creative studios, like when we use you all. You all had a phenomenal creative team. So we haven't really found anything to replace Facebook yet, per se. But I think it's just a matter of time until Facebook gets smarter. They're constantly ingesting data and they will figure iOS 14 out. It's like when, not if.
1: Yeah, I agree on that. A couple of things that I wanted to mention. I remember a period of time, it was just the I think ending of the quarter two, and the revenues started dropping, but you have hired a bunch of people and you have trained them throughout the, the quarter two. And I remember the the revenues, the monthly revenues have been decreasing and, and you you we're just on a break even and maybe on some of the buns even like losing the money. But the idea that you had behind, like you were still committed even by losing money or so or just breaking even, um, actually having all the people in a team not kind of laying, out, laying off anyone because you will need all these people for a quarter four. And this is something that I think a lot of business owners really think on a month-to-month basis and don't really think strategically or plan a little bit of ahead. Of uh, maybe a new launch is coming in or something else that they would be doing. And all the assets that they have, it's like it wouldn't be logical actually just laying off people. Or So, this is something that, yeah, it's sometimes why we are actually thinking of launching our own e commerce business because we are getting tired sometimes of clients just like really thinking just very little ahead. And actually, not really following oh, yeah. our recommendations, <laughs> and we just we sometimes want to risk and like yeah. uh, and we just want to spend and test different things, but yeah, you know, it's not our own business, so we cannot really do so. You know, with your business, it was like you can enjoy it just because you have the freedom and the things that you want to test, or so you're not as limited because each test gives you some kind of a new learnings and things that you can leverage later, and one out of maybe nine will be, you know, not really good tests and it won't really work out. But that one single thing might pay off for all those nine ones and will give you a lot of, you know, more revenues or so. So that constant testing or so I think in a little bit of a head. And this on the same topic of why when I asked you're you continuously still testing things or you're testing new ways of working you know like implementing new systems hiring new people testing new channels or so mm-hmm. another thing that we we've been interviewing some of our clients or sometimes uh, other e-commerce owners and we see that people just they're focused on the business but they don't really mm-hmm. focus on learning and improving and testing all the time and i think it comes from the marketers perspective sometimes because marketers and advertisers are always about you know testing even yep. not only professionally but in their own Everything. personal life, just yeah. always A B testing, supplements, you know, sleeping <laughs> less, sleeping more, and so on. But I think exactly this is uh, something that helps the, to build a business, and you know just looking from the agency perspective, seeing you know, different clients at the same time some of those are actually growing, others are not, just comes back to those small things that are related with the actual business owner and what type of decisions they're making.
0: Yeah. And unfortunately, you as an agency owner can only influence so much, right? But I think it's important that people get in the habit of, of planning. We have three-month years, we call them. So like every quarter, we're planning for that quarter as if it were a new year. And then at the end of the quarter, we're assessing performance, seeing what we did right, seeing what we could have done better, and then planning for the next quarter. And you only get that mentality through having a company more than a year. <laughs> because it's really difficult in those first 12 months to do that because you're just... You're everywhere. You're insane. You haven't built systems. You haven't built structure. You're planning tomorrow. So I think that's an experience thing. Like now, every company that I'm involved in, regardless of how old or new it is, we're planning three months ahead and doing quarterly KPIs and quarterly objectives. And then also, I kind of want to touch on a point you mentioned earlier as well. And that was hiring for Q4, so when we look at employees and when we look at a business as well, anything that I look at we're looking at from an asset perspective, these employees are assets, am I going to generate a return on investment them on them in the future? And if the answer is yes, then we should keep them. If the answer is no, then we should not keep them and you know scaling up and preparing for Q4 is something we started in October of last year or maybe the end of September, beginning of October from a hiring perspective, and Q4 hit very late for us, so it took literally until like Black Friday for us to hit those $300,000 days. And I thought those days were going to come much sooner because I think we were like 150 or something sooner. And it took actually a lot of effort for me to retain all those employees because we weren't that profitable in in October. But I knew November, December is when we're going to make our money. and thank God that I did right because if we didn't, Q four delivery issues would have been way worse for us because we you know we at least had a decent amount of customer service reps. we were we overhired for sure. but thank God, right? Because those unforeseen issues like we experienced that are basically Black Swan events that you could never have anticipated that happened. So I always over prepare rather than under prepare. and I think it's the same thing from like an employee perspective. I'd rather have too many that are confident in what they're doing, that aren't overworked because Q four can be like hectic on everyone, and people put in overtime, right? So for me you know once you look at it from an asset perspective it makes sense if you're not then you're probably doing yourself a disservice
1: And very shortly on this topic about uh, you know the personal growth testing things and so on what we have found from our belief and we had like a multiple discussions with some other business owners and a masterminds and as well like just seeing what our people are doing are uh, successful from our perspective I believe in kind of a statement that you know the business growth is kind of equal to the personal growth, the growth of the owner in a way. And I know that you have worked and tested and been into different masterminds, talking with yep. a lot of like uh, consultants and so on. You use, try using different systems, so I'm just curious to ask, uh, how do you structure your, your personal life together with the business, how it changed or like? What you do today, what you haven't really done previously, let's say last year, at the very beginning of the year, that could have helped you a lot of uh, managing your personal and the business life as well.
0: Yeah. So something that's really important that I recommend to everyone is, it's, it's going to sound so simple and stupid, but the impact is like the best return on investment you'll ever get for your time, is sitting down and creating what I call like a perfect calendar. And I think Ryan Dice over at Digital Marketer, or what used to be Digital Marketer, has a great version of this and was popularized by someone else who I can't remember off the top of my head. But sitting down, having an understanding of where do you draw the line with personal time and making sure that in your calendar, your personal time is the first thing that you're looking at when you're creating your calendar from scratch. And that's like your non-negotiable time that you're going to use for yourself. Otherwise, you're going to burn yourself out, right? And whether you believe that you need to work eight hours a day to be most productive, or if you're Elon Musk and you're working 24 7, there needs to be family time in there and there needs to be time in there for yourself for growth and learning, or you're not going to be evolving as quickly as a business owner as you should. So I think it's a very simple thing is having your calendar. And again, like if you just Google perfect calendar for Ryan Dice, I don't think it's called that, but if you Google that, it'll come up with a, a great article, Ryan Dice, about how to structure a calendar. And I think that was a game changer for me. It took me six or seven hours to restructure my calendar. Which I was like, oh, this is super easy. This is going to take me 20 minutes, right? I budgeted 20 minutes in my calendar for it. And it took me the whole day because you're moving all of your meetings to specific days. You know, like Monday is my day for Family Gifts Co internal meetings. Like I don't have meetings for Family Gifts Co outside of Monday with internal people, except for Friday, where we have our weekly, end of week meeting. And making sure that you're structuring those things from the beginning is probably the most important thing. And then obviously, Again, I can't say it enough. Implement EOS, implement scaling up, use Google's OKRs, some sort of system in your company where you have a pulse on things on a consistent basis, where everyone has an understanding of exactly what they're supposed to do, the objectives they're supposed to accomplish, understanding how what they're doing impacts the company as a total and making them feel like they're a part of the company. I think if you get that stuff from a business perspective figured out, it will help your personal life and growth so much. You know, back to learning, Like I literally budget an hour every single day in my calendar for watching some sort of video content where I learn. And at the end of the night, I read for 30 minutes to an hour. So putting that into your calendar and actually using it to learn new things and to grow is super important as a business owner. Yeah, growth to the business should be growth to the owner, but it's not always the case if you're so stuck in the business that you're not taking time to sit back, look at what you did right, what you did wrong what you need to do in the future. So I think that they should be synonymous, but they're probably not always based on the owner themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember we were having this conversation with you just discovered that. So I was like really curious to know if you're still using that and if I've changed and so on. 100%. Um,
0: and it's interesting. So like, I'm in meetings the majority of my day right now for investment or for acquisition of companies. And I'll look at people's calendars and you can see their entire calendar is open like 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern or whatever it is. And I'm like, dude, where are you budgeting time for your team? Where are you budgeting time for self-growth? If you're not doing those things, then you're failing your business because you need to be.
1: Yeah, because at the end of the day, there's so many things that you can do. But at the same time, you have all the time and you, know, you need to prioritize things. You need to have time for specific activities and you won't be able to do everything so things will have to be left out so if you will try to push everything on the business side at some point you know you will feel burnout and you won't spend enough time for personal health being with your family feeling yep. good other things that are as relevant to contribute to the business because if you don't rest so you know the, after a week you will just feel stuck and tired and so on for sure
0: People have looked at my calendar before, and they're like, "You have everything knocked out on your calendar. It's insane." Like, I when I go to sleep on my calendar, my first two hours of my day, from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, I don't touch meetings. That's my CEO time. That's when I'm doing things to move the business forward from like a quarterly goal perspective. Every single day, and then after that, I'm able to do the self learning or meetings or whatever for the day. But like those first two hours are sacred. I close the door. My wife doesn't come in here. <laughs> And I make sure that I'm focusing on whatever those quarterly objectives are to drive my business. Like, that's what I'm doing every single morning. And that's super important as well.
1: And one of the last questions that I wanted to ask you is now you stepped into shoes of investor. And we have discussed this, you know, previously as we were like planning maybe to take part of it and as well like in, invest ourselves or like join the forces and join, you know, and acquire someone together. But, uh, you know, some of your learnings for like what type of businesses in general you're looking for, because I think it's based on your personal experience and as well, like while talking to other people, you have a bunch of different calls, you have seen different types of e-commerce businesses. So what you're looking for, what you're looking at, you know, what are the critical things and the critical questions that, let's say, you're asking?
0: So that's a great question. Um, and I'll kind of start at a high level. So... Um, like what we're looking for is essentially what we know how to scale, right? So we're looking for D2C e-commerce companies that are three plus years old because typically anything less than three years, people have not really had the full business owner experience and they still have a lot of learning to do. And we're not sure what's going to happen in the future. If you're less than three years old, At three years, you kind of have, you know what you're doing, right? Or you should, and you should have a decent amount of revenue as well. And then we're looking for companies that have great people, or that have a great product that we think we can take our marketing systems, we can take our operational playbook, we can apply to those businesses, and that we can scale, and that we can ultimately exit for a multiple of our investment. And I think a mistake that a lot of people make, and we've seen this right now with iOS 14, is people sell at the wrong time. Last year in 2020, pretty much every business owner that I talked to had their best year ever, and nobody wanted to sell. Because why would you when you're making the best money ever? However, that is also the best time to sell, Now that iOS 14 is happening, now that ads are not as effective as they were in the past, it's hitting people and people are wanting out. But their P&Ls have been hit, their balance sheets have been hit already, and they're not going to be worth what they want to get. So I think having that understanding is super important. I think something else that's important for business owners to understand is that you need to look at your company like it's an asset, right? And investors are looking at it the same way. And investors want an asset they can generate a multiple of return on. And if they can't generate a multiple of return on it, then they're not going to want to purchase your asset. So like outside of the typical things that you think like financials that are solid and that are profitable or at least sustainable, investors are looking at three big things. Number one, like, are you as the business owner, the business? Because if you are, you don't have a business asset, you have a job. And nobody's going to want to buy that. Investors don't want to buy something, they're going to have to go in and run themselves So you need to do everything that you can to separate yourself from the business and be a strategic person in in the business and not being the person who's running it. I think that's the number one thing that most people get wrong. If I have to go in there and do stuff, it's not worth my time. Yes, I have a team that can do that. But why would I buy your businesses when there's other businesses that are completely automated where we don't have to really do much outside of grow it to buy it, right? So you need to separate yourself and be more on top of the business than in the business. That's the number one thing. I think the number two thing investors are looking at is having predictable sales within your organization. And that means like, do you have three or more revenue drivers for your company? Most businesses are one Facebook algorithm change away from going under. Most businesses are one Google search algorithm change from going under. But if you're multi-channel and you're investing in Google and you're investing in Facebook and you're investing in email and you're investing in Influencer and all these platforms, investors are going to look at that and say, this is a more predictable growth model. For this company, there's less risk to it. And therefore, I can pay more for this asset. Most people don't do that. And right. We didn't do it last year. We had like 90% of our revenue come through Facebook. And that was a, a lesson we learned this year when iOS 14 happened. So I think ensuring that you have those multi channel revenue drivers is super important. And then also the third thing is, do you have the systems and processes? and SOPs mapped out in your company to where is if I'm an investor, I can come in there and I can hand this to someone and they can read those SOPs and they can be an expert in that job within like a month, right? Because if you don't have those and that's work that I'm going to have to do as an investor, that I may or may not get correct. And I might put things in there that are incorrect and might cause a detriment to the business. And when I'm talking SOPs, like I'm not talking about high-level SOPs where you have, John is supposed to do this. Like Things may be exactly mapped out. You need video because you need Google Docs on what people are supposed to do so that anyone, and you should have this as a business owner anyway, because people are going to leave your company, you're going to terminate people, or people are going to move on, right? So having those three things, like making sure that you're out of your business as much as possible, and that it's a truly an asset that's performing without you, that you have predictable sales, and that you have the backend systems and infrastructure so that an investor can come in and there's not much work to do. Those are the three things most investors are looking at from a business perspective when they're looking at companies. Now, obviously, there's a thousand other things we look at as well, right? But 80-20, 80% of what we're looking at is that, and the rest is just minutiae that's going to increase or decrease the offer that we're going to take or the structure for the offer that we're going to offer.
1: What, uh, from the financial point of view or so, these were like kind of a strategic things. Do you look at the, some kind of a financial perspectives, margins or whatever, the number of products that they have, any other opportunities that are critical for you as well?
0: Yeah. So I think that's all like more of an underwriting thing than it is a multiple thing. You know, industries like print on demand are low multiple because it's so difficult in print on demand, right? We're releasing 10 new designs every single week without fail. And it's difficult to do that from a creative perspective, like, and as a business owner. Whereas, you know, we talked to a company earlier this year, $50 million a year company, $5 million net, and they sell it's like an LED screen product, one single product where you can upload your picture to it from email and you give it to like someone else like your grandma or something, right? And that's like a phenomenal product because it's only, it's one thing. They don't have to spend much time creating new products because it's one product, right? The majority of our week is like new product creation and development and the whole process that goes behind that. So I think it can impact like the multiple, but not as much as those things that I mentioned earlier. There's also different types of investors, right? Like you know, we're looking at companies that are typically profitable. If they're not profitable, there's at least a path to profitability. There are investors that are looking at distressed assets, but those are turnarounds essentially. And those are a lot of work and they may or may not work. They're risky. So we're trying to look at companies that have profit or at least a path to profit that doesn't involve huge liquidity injections because we're already paying for business, right? We don't want to have to come more out of pocket for something. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, that answers for sure. Cool. I guess we have covered a lot of actually topics already. Been talking for a little bit over an hour. I think we can end here. I think we did definitely cover it. What does it take actually for to become an e commerce uh, business and so on, and as well like what investors are looking for too. So thank you for your time, Kyle. Uh, really appreciate And really thank you enjoyed, for having me, Justin. Uh, yeah, talking with you again for a while. Um, <laughs> so the last question is. Uh, I've seen you, you're you becoming a little bit more active as well on social. So where people can find you?
0: Yeah, you can just find me on LinkedIn, Kyle Hunt. Or you can email me at kyle at ecomacquisitions.com. And that's ecom with two Ms and acquisitions with an S. I obviously need a simpler domain name. But kyle at ecomacquisitions.com or just find me on LinkedIn, Kyle Hunt.
1: So thank everyone for listening uh, today. A lot of learnings. Really a great guest. And uh, yeah, thank you again, Kyle, for being with us.
0: All right, you as well, Justin, thanks for the great questions.
1: Enjoying this podcast?
0: Consider subscribing and sharing it with your friends. This helps us to grow and create more amazing content like this for you.